0: Hello, I'm Josh Waters, and welcome to my new show, Rotten to the Core, a historical podcast where I'll explore some of the most dubious, conniving, unscrupulous jerks you've ever heard of, and others you may not have. These may not have been the best people, but they're not the worst either. They're just rotten. As you may have guessed, I'm Shane's brother, younger brother, And we've shared this fascination with rotten behavior since we were kids. It took him into true crime. It's taken me into history. He'd like to stop it. I'd like to know how it works. After years of working in a dementia ward at a nursing home, I've learned that even the sweetest old ladies may have some questionable moves in their past. And of course, I do too. (laughs) Like most siblings, Shane and I would occasionally pick on each other. I remember once, before either of us was in school, Shane was watching the television, probably Unsolved Mysteries. I was hungry and searching through the fridge for something to snack on. I don't remember why, but there was a bowl of black olives there. I instantly saw an opportunity to mess with my brother. (laughs) I grabbed the bowl and acted like they were the juiciest, sweetest, and most delicious grapes I've ever eaten. I handed them to Shane and told him to try some. I was fully aware he absolutely hated olives. He has a particular palate. The look on his face when he grabbed a few and started to chew and realized, (laughs) poor guy. If they were allowed to at the time, I'm sure he probably would have called me a rotten brother or worse. I believe that was towards the start of our sibling struggle to one-up the other. Never anything horrible though, but if we saw an opportunity to do something rotten to the other harmlessly, we would take it pretty excitedly. But I want to know, why are we like this? Why do we go out of our way for this stuff? And how do we do it so easily? And why are these stories so interesting, so enraging, and so funny? Sometimes all at once, like when the notorious conman George C. Parker, a.k.a. James J. O'Brien, a.k.a. Warden Kennedy, sold the Brooklyn Bridge, which he didn't even own, Hundreds of times. He also sold Ulysses S. Grant's tomb, city parks, and all kinds of other real estates that already belong to the general public. Well, you know that old saying, and if you believe that, well, then I have a bridge to sell you. That's a reference to George C. Parker, the guy who would sell you anything, absolutely anything, whether he owned it or not. Close your eyes and imagine you're an Irish immigrant landing at Ellis Island in 1925. You're tired, seasick, and you've been wearing the same clothes for the past five weeks. All of the money you have in the world is in your front pocket. You were sick of Ireland. You were sick of your rotten brother and your rotten cousins. But little did you know, someone even more rotten was waiting for you in New York all you know is this is the land of opportunity if you make the right connections you work hard you can do anything in america you can become anyone and you can become rich right before you get off the boat one of the deckhands informs you of a once in a lifetime opportunity he won't tell you what it is but he gives you directions to find a man named james j o'brien or warden kennedy or Mr. Roberts, or whatever he happens to be calling himself on that particular day. These names were all aliases used by one of the most successful con artists in American history, a native New Yorker named George C. Parker. Step right up, step right up. Step right up and be a winner right here. Before you know it, you are lured into a false sense of security and handing over the majority of your life savings. For some that meant $75, for others up to 5000 or more, to a man claiming to be the owner of the bridge in exchange for partial ownership of the Brooklyn Bridge. George was very good at the con, and he would get as much possible out of anyone he could, utilizing a full arsenal of perfectly printed and forged documents to back up his claim. His predominant marks were immigrants and tourists, but Parker would con just about anyone he could given a chance. Preying on the blindly optimistic, he would hook you with whatever he thought you wanted to hear. An easy way to make quick money and start living the American dream. All they had to do now was pay today, and before long and with little effort, they would begin to rake in that dough Using whatever alias he chose that day, Parker has told you how you can build toll booths on the bridge itself and charge a penny a pass for each person, five cents for each rider and horse, and ten cents for every carriage that uses the bridge. Well, after handing over your money in exchange for a deed for the Brooklyn Bridge, you start to build a toll booth, to begin pulling in some of that extra money, after all. Isn't this what you and your family dreamt of when you decided to come to America? Now, there was, at a time, that the Brooklyn Bridge did have a toll, back in 1883 when pedestrians had to pay a penny one way to cross, five cents for a horse and rider and ten cents for a horse and wagon. Well, with tens of thousands of crossers daily, you can see how lucrative it could be to have a piece of that income especially in a time when $1 would be equal to 16 in today's market. But that pedestrian toll was repealed in 1891 under pressure from civic groups and commuters. However, George Parker continued to con people into buying a portion of the Brooklyn Bridge until he was eventually caught in 1928, 37 years after the toll was removed. Suddenly, in the middle of building your booth, the police come up to you asking why are you crowding the bridge with construction material and for all of your permits. You just simply explain to them that you're the new partial owner of the bridge and show them your deed. Well, they inform you then that you've been swindled and begin to dismantle your booth and crush your dreams of hitting a big in the United States. You try to get the police to help you find justice, but due to the population and getting swindled being viewed as a civil issue, not a legal one, the police waste little time knowing their efforts would be in vain. George C. Parker was born in New York City on March 16, 1860 to Irish immigrant parents. George could still achieve his high school diploma as one of eight children. I couldn't find much on his family or early history beyond that. Just out of curiosity, I did discover that he was a Pisces. And in my research, I also found that they can be materialistic and money-minded. They also tend to be more hesitant to express their genuine emotions and thoughts more than the average person. Being one of eight children in a very low-income household, I believe gave George a stronger drive to succeed more than a solid moral compass. Parker is one of the most successful con artists in American history, at one point claiming that he sold the Brooklyn Bridge twice a week for nearly decades, said fellow inmates. And you know that phrase, if you believe that, then I have a bridge to sell you. Well, that's a reference to Parker. He would change his name appearance and voice all to con his marks into giving him as much of their money as they could part with. He would in turn give them one of his perfectly crafted deeds, and voila, you both walk away better off. Him counting his pay, and you with a fake document and a lie that you would soon discover. Well the Brooklyn Bridge isn't the only con that Parker would pull. Oh no. He pulled off a few rotten moves in his day. He was going as far as pretending to be Ulysses S. Grant's grandson, setting up a fake office for his real estate affairs, even conning people into buying a share of the deed, and for help to pay for upkeep and restoration of Grant's tomb. It really boils down to that they would have partial ownership of the tomb and responsible for its care. When they started to perform that maintenance, though, Police would inform them that Grant's tomb was owned and managed by the National Park Service and couldn't be owned by private citizens. You may be thinking, how could anybody fall for these cons? Just remember, most of his victims were not familiar with the United States, let alone New York City. I think of all the scams used by con artists as our version of spam email. Yes, most of us know that some faraway prince is not waiting to transfer a large amount of money to us tomorrow in exchange for a few hundred today. But every once in a while, someone does. Well, those are the types of people sought after by these rotten men and women. Parker was successful, but we aren't aware of the number of times he was refused. Someone with his ego wouldn't have boasted his failures too often. And no, he didn't kill anyone or cause bodily harm, but this guy was just rotten to the core. I'm baffled just that someone could do that to somebody already struggling. Not only that, but to walk away with no remorse at all? Hopefully, that was a mistake those gullible enough to fall for his cons only made once. Parker was caught several times during his career as a con artist. On New Year's Eve in 1908, George was in the courthouse after being arrested and caught for fraud. The current sheriff, Flattery, had just walked in from the cold and set his hat down near Parker. The sheriff then left the room and Parker quickly donned his hat and coat and made his way out of the courthouse but not before wishing everyone a Happy New Year on his way out. Well, everyone in the courthouse just assumed it was the sheriff and thought nothing of it. I mean, who would have the audacity to pull a stunt like that in a courthouse full of police officers? Well, George C. Parker. That's who. George was finally caught and sentenced due to forging a lousy check. The current rule of law was three-strikes-you're-out policy, resulting in a mandatory life sentence in prison, upheld by Judge McLaughlin of the Kings County Court. This arrest would make it Parker's fourth recorded strike. Parker pleaded guilty to grand larceny in the second degree in December of 1928, and then was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in Sing Sing Prison along the banks of the Hudson River. Well, due to his four strikes, Parker was deemed unrehabable, also being 68 at the time. Sentencing for the rest of his life wasn't really expected to endure for that long. He did seem to cope with his new living situation in prison quite well. He often would be found reminiscing with other prisoners and even guards about all of his successful cons. Parker would spend the next eight years within the confines of Sing Sing until he passed in 1936. Parker is one of America's most successful con artists and one of history's more rotten members. Intrigued with how someone like Parker's mind works, I did look up the psychology behind a con artist's brain. They tend to have the same three characteristics. Psychologists classify psychopathy, impaired empathy or remorse, narcissism, and manipulation all as dark personality traits. Those are what allow the con artists the ability to walk away without feeling any remorse or guilt for what they've done. Mix that with an overly inflated ego and you have the psychological profile of a rotten man like George C. Parker. Remember, The next time something seems like it may be too good to be true, make sure it's accurate before handing over your money. Someone may be lining their pockets while you walk away with something rotten. Thank you again for listening. This is Joshua Waters and this is Rotten to the Core, a historical podcast. Thank you.